0: talking about spontaneous order right now, and specifically spontaneous order in the market process as an example of spontaneous order. So I'm sure since most of you are Alex's students, you're already familiar with this. So I just ask you to bear with me. I hope there's something new in here. But um, yeah, so we'll see. All right, so basically spontaneous order, well, spon- there's, there's spontaneous order in the world, and then there's um, plant order in the world. Those are the two big distinctions. Okay. Um, So any kind of social phenomenon we can basically classify as either planned or unplanned. Um, Planned is anything that, well, somebody designed, right? So planned orders are by human design. Unplanned orders are by human action but not by human design. So this is from Adam Ferguson, uh, back in Adam Smith's days. Okay, so in the in the in the 1700s, um, Adam Ferguson was the first one basically to say this. Um, There are Phenomena in the world, social phenomena that are bigger than an individual, that are not designed by anybody, but yet still the result of human action. Okay? So, up here you see two pictures. The top one is a spontaneous order. It's a shopping street in my hometown in Cologne, in Germany. And I don't know if you can see it, it's kind of small, but um, on the left hand side, the people that are coming towards us, uh, you can see all of the faces pointed. Towards you, okay, and then on the right hand side, everybody's walking away, okay. So these people are following basically the rules of the road, kind of like as if they were driving, but they're on a pedestrian street, okay. Now, there are no signs that tell them to do this, right? But they do it because, well, it's efficient, okay. Now, obviously, it's kind of inconvenient sometimes for the individual, right? If you're walking down a shopping street, you're trying to get to a shop on the left, well, sometimes it gets really difficult to get to that shop. OK, especially if it's really crowded. So it's usually like this, especially on Saturdays. Terrible place to go shopping. Don't go. <laughs> Very inconvenient. Okay? But it works. Okay, The spontaneous order that has emerged makes it so that you can at least get through the street somehow okay? without being constantly interrupted or having someone walk in front of you. It never really happens. Um, so there are rules of the road that kind of emerged. It's an un- unplanned order, but emergent yet, and there is order to it. Okay. Now, on the bottom here, you see a planned order. And I had this awesome video of a marching band fail where everybody was kind of flapping over that that I was going to show you. But it's not going to work, unfortunately. But you can imagine it, right? It's hilarious. And I'm sure you've seen this before. So marching bands are a really good example of a planned order. right? It's of human design, and specifically of the design of the director right in the front. Each individual person in the marching band does not have a plan of their own. They're following the plan of the director, right? And there's an order that comes out of that, but it's not emergent, and it doesn't respond to what the individual wants to do. It responds only to what the director wants to do. And if anything gets in the way, you get chaos, right? They all fall over, and it's funny. Okay. Now, um, the... So, the, the unfortunately, the marching band uh, video won't work, but here is the... Spontaneous order video This is what we call a Shared space It's an intersection where there are no rules okay no traffic lights or anything and yet people are getting to where they want to go somehow Looks kind of crazy, but look how good it works aren't you amazed people are getting where they want to go and yes It looks horrible. You don't want to be there, but People are, <laughs> I'm not sure. It's, yeah, India or China or something. It's, I think it's actually a Turkish rap song playing in the back, so it might be in Turkey, I don't know. But um, So this is a spontaneous order. <laughs> yeah, and you can see kind of little traffic jams emerging some, sometimes, right, and then they kind of get through again. So there are rules to this process, right? I'm sure there are rules to this process. Probably something like, uh, if I want to cross the road and somebody's in front of me, I slowly nudge forward until I get a chance to go. Right, something like that. There are rules to how you interact in this in this system, yet they're not designed rules by anybody, and everybody has kind of tacit access to those rules. They're tacit in the sense tacit rules are rules that we know kind of, but we can't express. Right, so I just kind of tried to express it. You gonna kind of go until you can nudge Your way out, right? That's a tacit kind of thing. I can't really explain it in a way that sounds smart. It sounds kind of silly when I say it. We call that tacit knowledge, okay? So spontaneous orders a lot of the time rely on this kind of tacit knowledge. People just kind of do it and they have a hard time expressing what they're actually doing. Okay, now you can say this looks dangerous, and traffic lights are probably more efficient, right? Um, Well, That's debatable, right? We're not sure. But what I can tell you is that the shared space phenomenon is catching on. In Europe, they're doing it all over the place. Okay? So there are examples of this if you go online, and uh, there's a town in uh, the Netherlands where they do this all over the place. They took out all of their traffic lights, basically. Okay? And it's called shared space. So if you Google shared space, something like this will come up. All right. So, all right, let me see. I'm telling you everything I wanted to tell you about uh, spontaneous order. So, all right, so other examples of planned orders we already heard from Tom about, right? So statutory law or legislation, that's a planned order, right? Somebody is trying to enforce rules to get people to do certain things, right? So that's a really good, good example, a Really, good, another good example of a planned order, kind of like a, a marching band. Private businesses also, right? Private businesses are also planned orders, Right? somebody's planning what they're supposed to be doing and everybody has a role statement right, that tells you what your job is, a job description that tells you what you have to do, that you get evaluated based on. right? So I'm a professor at a university, I have a role statement that tells me what I'm supposed to be doing. That's a plan. right? Somebody's trying to plan what I'm doing even though I have a lot of autonomy compared to other people, but yet still there's kind of a plan for what I'm supposed to be doing. Now, um, So that means that Basically, planned orders and unplanned orders, spontaneous orders and um, not-so-spontaneous orders coexist in the world, right? So therefore, they're not necessarily good or bad or anything. But we can say that sometimes spontaneous orders work better than planned orders for certain purposes. Okay? so Tom was making the argument that maybe the law or the, the, the common law is a better system for certain purposes than statutory law. right? But they're kind of interacting. In the, in the world as it works today okay now let me tell you a little bit more about spontaneous orders Hayek calls these cosmos okay cosmos and he distinguishes them from taxes which is the plant order taxes plant order cosmos is the unplanned order if you want to read Hayek on this it's uh, the essay is the essay is called cosmos versus taxes and it's published in volume one of law legislation and Liberty um, so um, the important thing about unplanned orders is that they are well like tom said they're not really articulated but yet they're observed and that's what makes them an order okay so there are rules that we didn't plan but we're observing them and therefore they're an unplanned order so um, examples abound right language was one that he already mentioned um, and adam smith already talked about this in 17 actually before he ever published the wealth of nations he has a whole collection of essays, The Bell Letters, and one of them is on the first formation of languages. And in that book or in that essay, he talks about um, the word river and how it came about. Okay, so language as a spontaneous order. The word river, he says, actually used to probably just pertain to one specific river. Okay, somebody lived in a little village, and there was a river that ran by it, and they called the river, river, no, nothing else. And somehow that name stuck, right? So you can imagine a person from that village goes and travels to another village and they see another river and they say, hey, river, right? And then it sticks and everybody calls it river. So language emerges in this way. Money also is actually an emergent thing, an unplanned order, originally, anyways. Okay, so currently, money, the money that we have, is definitely kind of a planned order, right? Definitely kind of a planned order. The Federal Reserve kind of manages the money supply in the US, right? And they also manage what the, money, what the money that we're using is worth at the end of the day, right? But money, the way it originally came about, you can imagine the way it worked, right? We lived in a barter economy and I'm trading econ lectures for, I don't know what you do, you make hats. Okay, I'm trading econ lectures for hats. You don't really like econ lectures that much, but I really want a hat, right? So now what are we gonna do? Right? How do we get around this? Well, I have to find someone who will buy my econ lecture and give me something else for it that I can then trade with you for. Okay? Now, obviously, this happens all the time. right? We specialize, and so we make things that not everybody likes. Right? The way we get around this problem of not having something that somebody else desires is to kind of all merge onto one or, or pick one thing that we all think holds a lot of value that we all will trade for stuff. Well, and we have money, right? Something that is valuable enough that everybody will accept it because they know they can trade it for something else in the future, right? So money emerges. Or that's the story that Carl Menger tells, anyways. OK, that's the story that Carl Menger tells. OK. Um, another example of spontaneous order is fashion, right? How do we know what's fashionable? Huh? Matt? People tell you, yeah, your girlfriend maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, ads. That's for example, they try to the influence right it. Now. Hmm? Yeah. If you iPhone, you iPhone not cool. Yeah, yeah. So but but that's something that is not planned, right? People try to influence it for sure. And I'm sure Verizon would like to tell people what phone they should buy, right? But it's hard, they can't do it, right? It somehow manifests itself through, well, I don't know, I saw you, and I know you have a beard, so I really like your beard, I'm gonna start growing one. And then it becomes a fashion, right, it catches on. So it's kind of dependent on, well, preferences, but, well, a fashion trend is established by society as a whole, right, not by individuals. So the outcome is, well, a result of human action but not of anyone specific design. Right? Okay. Now another reason why unplanned orders are, or, or, or one specific reason why unplanned orders are kind of cool is because they have a really great way of dealing with information. Okay, so if you think back to planned versus unplanned orders, planned orders have as their biggest challenge how how to collect information, basically, right? If I wanted to plan the meals for this weekend and I wanted to make sure that I kind of took into account what you guys all like, and I also wanted to take into account what you were eating throughout this week so that you don't have repetition in your diet or something, right, then I would have to, well, I'll send you a survey before you all come here. I have to collect it and I already know you don't respond to surveys, right? So that's really hard, right? Really difficult to get you all to tell me what you want to eat. And I want to make sure that you're healthy so I don't want to make you eat the same thing three times in a row. I don't know if you watched The Daily Show, but last night on The Daily Show, they had this thing about hot dogs. If you eat a hot dog every day, it turns out, you get cancer. So, right? so to make sure that you don't get cancer, I have to make sure that your diet's varied. And if I want to do that as the central planner, I have to get your information from you. Right? That's difficult. So that's a really big problem with any kind of order, is collecting information. And it turns out that unplanned orders, a lot of the time, do a much better job at making sure that, well, people have a mixed diet or whatever, right, a varied diet than a plant order could do, right? At the end of the day, if we had given you money to go out and have dinner, you probably would have picked something first that you liked better, not that I'm trying to say the food was bad or anything, but <laughs> you would have probably picked something that you liked better and, well, that you hadn't had in a week or two, right? So information works a lot better in unplanned orders because the people that are making the decisions are... People on the ground that have all the requisite knowledge, and we don't have to collect it through surveys or stuff like that. Okay, so that's basically the big difference between unplanned and plant orders is how they deal with information. All right, now um, this is particularly important for any process that requires a lot of information, right? So, food, right? This example about what we were supposed to eat this weekend that's all good right and we can imagine a way for me to collect the relevant information and somehow figure it out right if i have a good enough computer i can probably somehow figure out how to maximize or optimize all of our diets this weekend right now if you think about a more complex system where it's not just about the food and there's not just 35 people that we need to coordinate then it gets even more difficult right so a good example is Oh, I'll get back to that in a minute. Right here, this pencil. Okay, and you might have heard of this story before. I pencil, right? This pencil, no one knows how to make, right? No one knows how to make this pencil. Do you? Anybody? No? That pencil is hard to make, right, for an individual. There's lots of stuff that goes into it, right? Trees. I don't even know how you make paint. There's like a brass thing on the top, the rubber for the eraser, and then there's a... Uh, It's it's, it's called a lead pencil, but there's not really lead in there. It's graphite, right? All right, so you have to mine graphite. You have to fell a tree. You have to uh, make paint, and not only yellow paint. You have to have green, too, for the label, right? So that's all difficult. And, well, no individual knows how to do it, okay? So this pencil is a lot more difficult than managing our diet, right? So for processes that require the coordination of... Millions of people like this pencil. Most of the time, we rely on unplanned orders. And we don't ever really think about that. But no one told anybody to grow trees to make pencils with. Right? The reason why people grow trees and then fell them and sell them off is because there's someone that's demanding wood, not because there's someone that wants to make a pencil. right? So it's not required for the person that grows the tree to know that the tree's going to turn into a pencil eventually. Right, it's not required. All right, so the bigger the order, the more well difficult the problem, kind of. Right? The more difficult the problem of knowledge aggregation. All right, Now, the person that <coughs> first pointed this out really well, to economists at least, is F.A. Hayek in an essay titled The Use of Knowledge in Society. Has anybody read that yet? All right, so a lot of people know it already, right? The Use of Knowledge in Society. What does Hayek say in that essay? One of the people that said they read it already. Jeremy? Uh, In particular, in which part? Well, whatever you want. Um, uh, He says that uh, uh, markets economize on information. Markets economize on information, that's right. So basically what he says is the economic problem, the real economic problem is not, like you get told in most of your econ classes, the efficient allocation of resources. That's BS, not really the problem. The real problem is knowledge aggregation. And it's a marvel how well, he actually calls it a marvel, how well the market process does at aggregating information. And yes, the outcome is an efficient allocation of resources. Efficient, right, in parentheses, or in, in hypotheticals, because it really isn't perfectly efficient, right? But it's pretty good, right? Resources get allocated to their most efficient uses through the market, through the price mechanism. But the marvel is really in the aggregation of the information, coordinating people's actions, okay? That's really the marvel. Alright, now his example is 10, and I don't know if you can see that's tin foil up there. But the example that he gives in the essay is 10. So he says, Imagine a new use for 10 arises somewhere in the world. Okay? You're a user of ten, and a new use for 10 comes up somewhere else. Okay, so t- what happens when that happens? The demand for 10 goes up, right? What, what does that do? Demand for 10? Price increases, okay. When the price increases, what do you do as a user of 10? Buy less 10. that's right, you buy less 10, okay. So that makes it possible that more people can now use 10, right, because you economize on your use of 10, right. That's Hayek's example. Another really good example is plywood, okay. So after Katrina, people in New Orleans really needed plywood, right. And people in Colorado m- might have wanted to build a treehouse while that was going on in New Orleans, right. Maybe you wanted to build a treehouse for your, your kid, or your dad wanted to build one for you, or something. Okay. Um, now, obviously, that wasn't really a good time for society for you to go and buy plywood, right? Society would have preferred you not to buy plywood because they wanted it to go to New Orleans, right? All right. So, how did that did that actually happen? Did you actually conserve on your use of plywood after Katrina? You shake your head. No. Why? It doesn't generally Colorado affect market. you? doesn't affect the Colorado market? It doesn't affect the Colorado market. OK. Anybody disagree? Right. I, to disagree I mean, if it's going to be used in New Orleans, then if the price is going to increase, and people will buy it if they, if they don't value it that much. Yeah, right. It's just like the tin at the end of the day, right? The demand for plywood in New Orleans goes up, that affects markets everywhere in this country, and not just in this country, in the world probably. Right? The demand for, t- for plywood goes up. That drives up the price of plywood, and that means that you're less likely to build a treehouse. Not if you're Bill Gates, right? because then at the margin you don't care. But if you do care about the cost of building a treehouse, then you're going to conserve on the use of plywood. Right? So maybe you'll tell your kid, oh, never mind, let's do it next month, when the people in New Orleans are done building their houses back up or something. Okay, or next year maybe, or something, so just like with 10, people cons- everywhere in the country people conserved on the use of plywood after Katrina, and they didn 't even know it, right they didn 't even know it. now what 's important for this thing to work is that all of this just happens at the margin, right it's just a marginal change. Not everybody stopped using plywood after Katrina in other parts of the country, right? Not everybody stopped using plywood. It's just some people did. The people that were most price sensitive, right? And this is where I go back to this thing. This whole system runs on two basic assumptions. And I don't know if you can tell what they are from these pictures, so I'll tell you. This, this one down here is subjectivism. OK, so this uh, is one of the biggest assumptions of Austrian economics, is that people are subjective. OK, they, they make their decisions based on their subjective assessment of how, of how the world works. Okay, so that means that every time I go out and think about what I'm going to do, I'm not thinking, all right, so really I want to do good for society today, and so I'm not going to buy coffee because I know that there are going to be a lot of other people that need coffee, and if I buy coffee, then they might not be able to, right? I don't do that. I only think about myself, right? Only I need coffee tomorrow morning, otherwise I'm not going to make it, so I'm going to go buy some right now, and I don't even care how much it costs, okay? So subjectivism. I only take into consideration the information that's relevant to me. Okay? It's very hard as a human being to be objective, right, about what you're doing. Um, Oh, actually, that's well, that's methodological individualism. See, I got confused by my pictures. (laughs) This one's subjectivism up there. Right, this one's methodological individualism. Methodological individualism just means we look at the world from a perspective of the individual. We try to analyze the world as composed of individuals. And macro phenomena are really just the outcome of individuals on the ground acting. Okay? Rather than thinking of, um, for example, a world of perfect competition where everybody acts exactly the same, right? we think of the world as composed of individuals that are different. Okay? And yet still we get macro phenomena out of that. Okay? All right. So those are the two big assumptions that are basically underlying Hayek's analysis right here. This picture is exchange. just kind of a nice picture of how people are exchanging. I don't know. Okay, all right. Um, let's see. All right. Now, um, prices do the, the heavy lifting and high X analysis in the use of knowledge in society. Prices are the thing that communicates information to people, to the individuals that make the decisions on the ground, right? Prices do the heavy lifting. So this guy, Ludwig von Mises, he actually, um, well, before Hayek actually, before Hayek ever published The Use of Knowledge Society, he already made a similar argument, or kind of a related argument, which was that if we don't have prices, we can't make good decisions at all on different margins. Okay, So one margin is um, consumption is independent of production if we don't have prices. Okay, and you can imagine a really good example probably. If we don't have prices, what do we see usually? Can you think of anything that there aren't prices for in today's world? Hmm? Air. Okay, yeah, so the consumption of air is independent of the production of air. There's not really production of air, but there's something that happens here. What is it? What are you thinking of? Hmm? Say that again. Breathing. Breathing? It's a common resource. It's a common resource. Okay, so what do we do with it excessively? Pollute it. pollute it. That's right. We pollute it excessively, right? Because we don't have to pay for it. Okay, so there's excess demand, right? Excess demand. What? Uh, externalities. Externalities. That's right, basically. Yeah, that's the idea, right? Consumption is independent of production. Now, um, what what Mises was thinking about was lines of people, standing in line for stuff, right? So if you're thinking about say, Russia or the Soviet Union or something, right? or even, even the Second World War in a lot of places in the world, there were lines a lot of the time. People had to wait in line to get bread. right? And sometimes you get lucky and get bread. Sometimes you didn't. right? Now, what Mises said is basically that only happens if there aren't prices that are actually reflecting scarce, the scarcity of the good that we're trying to buy or sell. Okay, So if somebody's messing with the price mechanism, then you get either a surplus or a shortage, and people are standing in line. Um, another thing that happens when you don't have prices is this calculation of the, pro- of, of the value of production goods is independent of the things that you're producing with those production goods. Okay, so if you think about that a little bit more, right, so production goods, by, by that I mean machines essentially, right? Where does the, where, how do I figure out what the price of a machine should be? If you're producing, say, I don't know, shoes, what would you pay for a shoe machine? The profit that you expect to get from using it, okay, so what do you have to know for that? You have to know the price of shoes right that's right You have to know the price of shoes and how much profit you can make making shoes right so the only way we know really what we would pay for production equipment is through the prices of the goods that that production equipment is going to produce. now if we don't have prices for the, the stuff on the stuff that's produced right the the stuff that comes out of the machines, then we can't have prices for the machines, right? We can't we can't value the production equipment, okay? And then the last thing is, um, there's basically it's impossible to produce any kind of efficient resource allocation. That's the last point he made, okay? So because we don't, we can't value production equipment, and because we but because consumption is independent of production, it's impossible to allocate resources effectively at all, really. Well, and then at the end of the day there's also something about incentives, but that's less of a strong argument right everybody knows that if we don't pay people uh, their marginal product, for example, right then they don't have an incentive to work right okay or, uh, the, I shouldn't say everybody knows the economists know right the economists know all right now um, so what is it <coughs> what else is there to um, markets as an example of spontaneous order that makes them so good. So um, we said prices. Prices are really important because they create incentives and they allow us to communicate information effectively. Okay? But I want to claim that there are a couple of other, or actually, it, prices communicate information, right? There are a couple of other things that are also central to the way the spontaneous order and the market process specifically functions. And the, the first one on top there, the guy with the carrot and the sticks, that just stands for in, incentives. Okay, you might think my pictures are silly. I apologize. Try not to use words. Talked to this woman, Deirdre McCloskey, and she told me that it's bad <coughs> to put words on slides. So I t- I'm trying not to do it. And it turns into b- bad pictures, silly pictures. <laughs> so I don't know if that's better. But okay, so incentives are important in markets, right? Incentives are the things that make us do things for other people, essentially, right? So remember from Adam Smith's invisible hand, right? The butcher, and the brewer, and the baker. It's not from their, their regard to, to us, not from their, from their welfare that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their, to their own self-interest, right? So the butcher, and the brewer, and the baker, Adam Smith says, do things for all of us. They make our dinner, not because they like us, but because they're self-interested, OK? So that means the incentives are aligned correctly, right? The incentives are aligned such that people end up doing stuff that is socially beneficial, but they do it out of rational self interest, okay? All right, so incentives, information, and the last thing is innovation. Markets are also really, really good as a spontaneous order um, at coming up with innovations, right? iPhones, iPads, right? We love those, and they weren't even around six years ago. Five years ago. No, six, right? 2005 is when the iPhone came out. No? Something like that. Five or six years. Can you believe it? What kind of a world was that? I don't even know. I wouldn't have gotten here today because I used my iPhone to walk around Denver with. Okay, I would have had to use a map. And I really don't know how those work anymore.
1: I really don't.
0: I really don't. So innovation is also something that markets do really, really well. All right. So I'm gonna claim that those three things are the things that make markets as a spontaneous order particularly efficient. Okay, particularly efficient. Now think back to the other examples of spontaneous order: language, um, money, right? And you can think of similar things that are going on with language and money, right? Where there are also incentives, right, but it's kind of weaker. There are also Things that are similar to prices but not really, right? It's costly to do certain things, like if I were just to try and invent new words all the time, right? Then I couldn't really talk to anybody because they wouldn't really understand what I'm saying, right? So that's a cost of being weird with language, right? In a market, that costliness is much more efficiently communicated because I actually, well, I'm penalized by having to pay money, right? But you can think of similar things happening in other spontaneous orders. And you can also think of similar things happening in other planned orders, right? So a planned order should always try to emulate incentives or try to get to incentives, information, and innovation, right? Planned orders should always try to get there. Okay, now how is it that markets get to these three I's? Well, it's with the three P's, which is prices. Uh, prices do information. Profit and loss create the right incentives. Right? It's because of profit and loss that the butcher and the brewer and the baker make the things that I want to eat and drink. Right? And then private property is what makes us innovate, essentially. Right? Without private property, we wouldn't have an incentive to innovate because if we can't claim property over the things that we're creating, then, well, there's no reason to innovate. Right? And Tom is going to talk about intellectual, or, about intellectual property right, Tomorrow? Copyrights, yeah, copyrights tomorrow. So that fits right in there, okay? Basically, the the idea behind copyrights is, well, we have to give people copyrights, which is just like property, right? A property right over some some piece of intellectual property um, to incentivize them to produce innovation, right? To produce innovation, to innovate. All right, so the three P's lead to the three I's. So that means now that anytime you look at any kind of social order, you can kind of think about it in terms of the three P's and the three I's. Are there equivalents of prices that lead to information? Are there equivalents of property rights that allow people to innovate and take advantage of the benefits of the innovation that they create? And are there profit and loss signals that make people act in a way that's socially beneficial, even though they're incentivized by their own rational self-interest? Okay. So We can look at other orders and kind of think about it, think about them in terms of these three P's and the three I's. Okay. Now, here are some examples, and we already talked about lines, of systems that work without the three P's. Systems that work without the three P's. Okay, so on the left, that's supposed to be a painting of Jamestown. Okay, so the Virginia colony, right? And you may have heard about the history of Jamestown before, right? So it started out as basically. Um, a, a common property scheme. Most of the people there were indentured servants that didn't own themselves or the things that they were producing, so they didn't have an incentive to produce anything. And, well, they quickly started turning into crazy people that were attacking each other and actually digging up graves to eat dead bodies because they were out of food and stuff like that. Okay, so that's, that's what happens with that property. Now that's an extreme, though, right? Because we know that there are lots of places in the world today where people don't have perfect property rights. Has anybody ever heard of Hernando de Soto? Hernando de Soto, the economist? Anybody know Hernando de Soto? You don't remember? All right, so Hernando de Soto is famous for um, talking about how the absence of property rights, and specifically land titles in Peru, um basically keeps people out of the legal economy, keeps them unable to participate in the well, the legal legal economy, and so they're they're forced to be extra legal or in an illegal economy, okay, at all times. Okay, and then there's a bread line in Russia, I think that's Russia, I don't know, I hope so. Anybody speak Russian? Does that look like Russian? <laughs> okay. And then we have the DMV and the post office, right? They don't have prices well, they have prices, but they're not real prices, right? not market prices. Um, They're not set by the market. The prices at the DMV and in the post office are set by Congress, right? Or for the post office, anyways. They have to apply to Congress to increase the price of a stamp, right? Um, So you get lines, because people demand more than, well, what they should be demanding, right? The price is too low. There is a shortage. And another thing about them, there are no profit and loss signals, so the, the service they provide is really not Socially beneficial at all. Right? Or is it? Do you like the service? You like the DMV? Yeah. I like the post office because I don't have to fly or drive to where I need to drop the letters. But there are other services for that. There are other services for that, that's right. Well, it would be nice if there was something that you could use instead of the post office yeah, to deliver be your be mail, right? Letters. letters to have competition. Kind of for office, not for letters, for packages. Well, so Overnighting. You can fax, you can email, them yeah, yeah. yeah, no, definitely, yeah. So faxing and emailing are definitely alternatives. right? But not perfect alternatives, right? They're substitutes, but not perfect substitutes. For the DMV, there's no alternative. They have a monopoly over license plates and IDs. Wait, wait. Some of the people who get their driver's
1: licenses don't live, driver's Oh, oh,
0: yeah. yeah. Yeah, some people that get driver's licenses may not deserve <laughs> them. That's true. But that's, well, who knows, right? Who knows? Who knows? I, I really wouldn't want a more efficient system because I might lose mine. OK. <laughs> All right, now <clears throat> uh, the good thing is that even when we're in a situation where we don't have property rights or prices or profit and loss. We still have entrepreneurs. And entrepreneurs are really good at coming up with new institutional structures that incorporate property rights, prices, and profit and loss signals to get to a better solution. Okay? Now, these aren't entrepreneurs like you usually hear about like, that come up with new business ideas. These are what I want to call institutional entrepreneurs. They innovate on a level of rule formation okay, for society. So let me give you an example to make this a little bit more clear. This is actually some of my own research. Um, I went to Peru last summer with a group of students. And while we were there, we interviewed a bunch of small business owners. And we quickly found out that the taxicab drivers were the most interesting among the small business owners um, because they have this really elaborate mechanism of protecting their own property. OK, so like I said, Hernando de Soto, right? he talks about how weak property rights are in Peru. And they are. Property rights are really, really crappy. They're not really well protected. For taxi cab drivers, the problem with property rights and not being well protected is that their their cabs are stolen all the time. Okay, they're stolen all the time, and well, there's lots of vandalism, and then people run away without paying and stuff like that. So very insecure um, system for the taxi cab drivers. Okay, if you're not protected in some other way, then well, it's not all that profitable to be the, to be a taxi cab driver in Peru because. You lose your property fairly quickly. Okay, so the way they've overcome this is taxicab companies in Peru, in addition to doing all the things that taxicab companies do in the United States, like uh, you know, having people call in and, and ask for taxi services um, and then radioing the drivers, they also provide protection of the property that the people that are part of the company own. OK, so the way this works is if you're a taxicab driver, if you want to be one, all you have to do is buy a yellow car. And then you can join a taxicab company for a fee. If you're part of a company, the company offers a property protection service, essentially. OK, and the way the system works is collective, well, collectively, all of the taxicab drivers basically help each other. OK, so they join these taxi cab companies. And there are four different examples right here. And if you're part of a company, you get a radio in your car, just like you would here. Now, they use the radio to contact each other every two to five minutes or so. Okay, so the company contacts you every two to five minutes. And they ask you where you are and if everything's all right and you have to check back in with them. Now, if anything happens to you, anything, you call either. If your cab's lost, you call the company. Or if somebody is taking your money or, you know, vandalizing your car or something, you can radio them. And what they'll do is they'll immediately contact everybody in your perimeter that's close to you. And they will tell them to go help you. Okay, so everybody in the perimeter is required to immediately drop off any passengers they have right there. Immediately drop anybody off, kick them out, and go help the, cat, the cab driver in need. Okay. Now, if you are an individual cab driver, how likely are you to respond to this call for help? Not very, right? I mean, are you really going to kick out your customers? That's not very good, good customer service, right? You might not get them back in the future. You, you're worried about that. And you'd prefer to make money than to go help your buddy, right? Now, that's a free rider problem, right? What we call a free rider problem. The way they've overcome this is the taxi cab company has a um, penalty system in place. If you don't respond to a call from them, you're excluded from the radio service for a certain number of days, which means you lose your protection, right? Because if you don't have your radio, you can't get help from your buddies, right? Um, or they ask, they, alternatively, you can choose to pay a penalty, like a fine. And it's actually a graduated sanction system where you pay more the more severe the incident was that you didn't respond to, Okay. So that makes that helps them overcome this free rider problem and they end up actually helping each other. All right. Now this is really effective. So two we interviewed about 20 drivers or so, and two of them had had their cabs stolen within the last year and both of them got them back within a day. Which is really really good for Peru because if you go to the police you won't ever get it back essentially. You won't ever get it back. They they all said that if you go to the police, the, the, the best you can expect is that they tell you, I'm sure, sure I'll be happy to help you. You don't even have to pay a bribe, but you have to go get me gas first because I'm out. And I don't have any money to get more. Okay? So the police is not very effective, but their system works. They get their cats back within a day. Okay, Now, obviously, well, what do they do when they find an offender, you think, somebody that stole a cab or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they beat them up pretty bad. Okay, so this is another aspect of this property rights protection mechanism, okay? They have to punish the people that violate their property rights, right? The police isn't doing it. The court system's pretty crappy, so that's not going to happen either. So they beat them up. And they do that at the risk of being, well, doing something illegal themselves, right? Because you can't just go around beating people up, right? If there's a police where you live, right? Huh? Yeah, yeah, he's not going to be able... Yeah, he's not going to be able to chase you very far, that's true. So, there's not a very high cost, but there's potential cost, right, of doing this. So, yeah, so they, they engage in what I want to call a collective punishment mechanism. Okay, they all get together and beat up the, the offender. Okay, the last aspect of this, this, this scheme is these nice logos that you see right here. Okay, so these are very pretty tax cap logos, you have to say, right? Compare them to taxi cab logos around here. They usually don't even have logos. They have numbers and letters and stuff on them, right? And maybe a different color for a different cab company. But certainly not these nice labels, right? So I think what the, the function of these huge company symbols is, is essentially they're a signal of the reputation of the company, right? So if you're a company that's very effective at protecting your taxi cab driver's property, then you want everybody to know that. Right? You want all potential offenders to know that you're going to come after them, and you will beat them up if you find them. Right? Well, the way you do that is to distinguish your cab with these nice logos and labels right, and crests of your companies. So that's why they have these nice logos, I think. But that's just my story. So I'm not sure that that's actually true. But it works. There are tons of cabs in Peru. You wouldn't even believe it. Has anyone ever been? It's crazy. There are basically no private cars. No private cars, but millions of cabs. And you can understand why that is, right? If you have a car, you're subject to the same problem that these people are subject to. Your car will get stolen, especially if it's nice, right? So it's it's really costly to have your own car. But if you can join such a company and be part of that, you can protect your car, well, and it works, right? So. I think that's why you see a lot more cabs and a lot fewer private vehicles than anywhere else in the world. All right, so this is an example of a spontaneous order solution, right? It, at the end of the day, this taxi cab company itself is a planned order, right? Someone's planning it. Someone set up the incentive structure. But it emerged in a system that was completely orderless, right? So, if something like this could have happened in Jamestown, maybe they wouldn't have starved to death, right? So, Basically, the lesson from this is that in a spontaneous order, systems will emerge that create property, private property, and take advantage of prices and profit and loss signals. Okay? So for each company, there is a profit and loss mechanism in place that makes sure that the company actually does what's in the best interest of the drivers. Right. Because if your company doesn't have a good incentive system in place that makes your drivers cooperate, then you can't protect their property, and then the drivers won't be willing to pay very much to be part of your company. Right? So profit and loss keeps the companies from coming up with bad institutional solutions. So this is good news. right? In the absence of any kind of good governance, we can get private solutions to bad institutional problems. And they emerge out of a spontaneous order, and sometimes they might be planned. I'll start over here, What's because that's easiest to see, incentives, right? What is another example of an institutional entrepreneur? Okay, so um, some of my other work is on institutional entrepreneurship in the context of Congress, for example. And so if you look at how Congress and congressional institutions have evolved over time, you see that they basically... Have evolved, they have evolved to facilitate trade among congressmen. Um, and at every step of the way, whenever rules were changed to move in that direction, there was some institutional entrepreneur that was basically taking a lead on making that move, and it was always for their own self-interest. Right? So whatever, whatever they were trying to do under the, the existing regime wasn't really working, so they had to promote a rule change to get to where they wanted to go. Um, so lots of stuff like that in the political system. So are you saying that it's institutionalized, where uh, I would just say where they are uh, trying to like fulfill something that wasn't there necessarily before? Yeah. So I'll talk a little bit more about this tomorrow. But the the committee system in Congress didn't exist. Um, in the first Congress, there was no committee system. There were no standing committees or, or, or committees of any kind. There was only a, collect, a, 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 a committee of the whole. So Congress would make decisions as a whole body. Um, they still vote as a, as a whole today, but bills are drafted by committees with specific jur- jurisdictions, and that kind of evolved over time. Um, and then within the committees, uh, seniority basically determines who is the committee chairman, and the committee chairman turns out to be the one that actually uh, moves a certain issue in, in a specific direction, whatever he thinks is the right direction to go. So he has, he has a lot a lot of power as an agenda setter, and we'll talk more about that tomorrow. But that's, um, yeah, so that's another example. And then there's tons of other ones. So if you're, you've probably heard of Eleanor Ostrom. She received the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2009. Yeah, 2009, two years ago. Um, and her work is all on local self-governance institutions. Um, Which basically is just another word for, well, uh, institutions that govern whatever collective action problem you have in a community. So for example, fisheries often have free rider problems. right? Um, And she calls it common pool resource problems, actually, where more resources are extracted than what's sustainable in the long run. And it turns out that in most of the cases where you see successful solutions to those types of collective action problems, there's always one guy who came up with the solution somehow or drove things in the right direction. Um, she doesn't talk about that very much at all anymore. She used to a lot more in her dissertation, where she actually worked worked on uh, the California California Water Basin. Um, she still talks about it as institutional entrepreneurship, and then she dropped that term. But um, there are always people that are the, the movers and shakers that you know innovated the the rules basically. So if you want to m- want more examples, look at her stuff. Um, okay, let me go to the next one. Why does government overprovide? Uh, oh, wait, this is just the one. And then okay, okay, all right, that makes sense. Then I'll go that way. Okay, how did the taxi consortium evolve from a defective system? I don't know. Don't know. Unfortunately, how it evolved. Um, that's a good question. Something that I could ask them in a follow-up session of interviews, maybe. But I'm not sure how it evolved. Don't know. That's my best answer. <laughs> no clue. There, there was a uh, there was an article on the on Institute website about you know people need to say be able to say I don't know when considering you know how the market allocates resources to make something like an iPhone. Yeah. Who knows how that happened, but it did. Right, right, and it's the same thing with rule systems, right? We don't know if it's a, if it's really that the product of a spontaneous order, then we shouldn't be able to tell because as an individual we can't have the information, right? or no individual that I can talk to anyways could have the information. I'm an outsider to begin with, but yeah, thanks. That's great. (laughs) I appreciate that. Okay. How do interest rates communicate relative scarcities and preferences and subjective value? Well, just like prices, right, at the end of the day. How do interest rates communicate relative scarcities, preferences, and subjective value? Well, okay, so interest rates in the world today are manipulated significantly, right? So they're kind of defective, but if there were a free market for money, then there would be some interest rate that's more like a market rate um, and like a real price. And then it, then it would do the same thing. It would communicate people, people's preferences for um, how they use their money over time, right? whether they want to use their money today uh, or tomorrow, essentially. I don't know if that answers the question. Who, who asked? yeah the scarce, um, the scarce thing is the money itself at any given point in time right so um, if you are an investor right and you need to borrow money to make an investment say you want to start a business or something then money is the thing that's scarce right and and um, where time comes in is with the preferences for for how people use their own money, right? So I have savings of a certain amount because I expect that in the future I might need money. And then my time preference over the use of my own money determines how how much money I save, and that determines the interest rate that you'll get charged at the bank for your loan, for your business loan. Okay. Okay. Um, How do we price unpriced? Goods and services to accurately reflect reflect our market value. That's a big challenge. That's a big challenge. I mean, it's it's not a big challenge for things that could be priced where we have property rights, so that there would be a market if we just would let a market be, like for example, drugs, right, or blood or kidneys, right? We could totally have a market for kidneys and it was, would price kidneys really, really well and it would get rid of the organ shortage that we currently have, right? It would work, but it's prohibited, right? So it's outlawed. We aren't allowed to trade in kidneys, unfortunately, I think. Um, so uh, currently unpriced goods that are that are unpriced because the trade or trading in them is illegal are really easy to solve. Just let people trade and then you'll have a... You'll have a price for the thing. Um, the problem we have is things where there aren't property rights, like air, like we talked about, right? To price them correctly is difficult, right? And so you can do like, I don't want to say half-assed, but half-assed solutions <laughs> like cap and trade, where you basically make up a price. Now that can have lots of distortive effects, right? Because basically we're deciding to set a price, and if it's too low, well, if the price is too low, we're still over-consuming. If the price is too high, we're under-consuming. So uh, things where there aren't property rights, we really have a hard time solving that problem. And that's particularly true for things where there aren't property rights that, um, that affect large geographical areas, like air or ocean water and stuff like that. It it gets a little easier when you have a a smaller system. Like Eleanor Ostrom's work on fisheries is a really good example because lakes also are a common pool resource. But it turns out people have figured out ways to assign property rights over at least parcels of lake water in a a way that's effective, that actually preserves the resource and overcomes the common pool problem. So yeah, look at her stuff because it's really good on exactly that problem. But yeah, we don't know for the big ones. It's hard. No, no idea. But what we do know is that, or well, what we think we know anyways, is that property rights usually emerge when things become scarce. Okay, so um, for example, uh, beaver pelts, right? Uh, well, they, as long as they weren't priced, that there was overconsumption, right? But everywhere where you could price them, people actually used their resources more effectively. And as uh, settlers came from Europe to here, you saw more and more property rights emerge, among the Indians even, too, where they might not have had them before, among the natives. Indians, Whatever. Sorry, I'm totally not PC. OK, does that make sense? OK, all right. Uh, How do they establish the rules to monitor and sanction their participants? <laughs> Another thing that I can't really answer. Um, unless I understand the question wrong maybe. Um, how did they decide to or how did they decide to pick the rules or how do they monitor each other? What is that the question? It was how they Yeah. Right. Yep. Right. How did that come about? Yeah. I think. They that out? Well, I think the best, the, the most of the time for systems like this, it's trial and error, over time. Right. I mean, you can you can probably sit down and come up with a way to protect your property as a taxi cab driver. Right. At the end of the day, <coughs> that system is not all that elaborate. Right. So you can probably plan that fairly well as an individual. But I think that refining the rules and coming up with graduated sanctions and deciding how long you need to be suspended from the radio service to make, it, to make the incentive binding. Right? So if, if you say you suspend someone from the radio service for a day when they don't respond, that probably isn't a sufficient incentive. Right? So they had to find the right kind of time. Right? So you know you give up at least a day of searching. So, so if you don't respond, you have to at least pay a day worth of, worth of wages or the equivalent in time and risk for not being part of the radio service. right? And I would say that that's probably a process of trial and error. right? That's probably a process of trial and error. Whenever you have too many people defecting, your incentive mechanism isn't sufficient, not strong enough. Right? And that's also what Eleanor Ostrom says. She says all of these governance structures that she describes are probably the result of, of trial and error. Some of them don't work. right? So you can go around the world, and you'll see fisheries where they still um, over-exhaust the resource, and, and it gets depleted over time. Right, so it doesn't work everywhere, but some places it does. She's, she's come up with kind of her, here's, here's the successful ones, here's they've modeled. Yeah. Um, yeah. Really, like, that yep. case, you know. Yeah. She has like a list of 10 criteria for, that, that she thinks are required for a system to work, yeah, in her book, Governing the Commons. And, uh, and essentially, you have to have, basically, she says you have to have all of them or it won't work. And so in some situations where you don't have either graduated sanctions or it's too complex or um, you, don't, you can't exclude outsiders, then, you know, you can't overcome the problem at the end of the day. So you're familiar with the book, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great book, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I try to tell my students, but they think the chapters are too long. I don't know. Okay. The length and speed of the line in which people wait are information and cost. Yes. How is this reflected or why is it not reflected? It is reflected. Um, It is reflected. Now, the problem is, okay, so technically, if, if it's costly to wait in line, then the people who have a higher opportunity cost of time, everybody familiar with opportunity cost? That what you're giving up, okay, the, the highest cost alternative, basically, um, if you have a higher opportunity cost of time, then that means it's more costly for you to wait in line at the DMV, right? so if you 're unemployed, don't have anything to do other than sitting at home, then not trying to be rude to the unemployed, but if you're unemployed, then it's not as costly to go to the DMV as it might be for I don 't know the CEO of whatever company, right? For them, it's a lot more costly, but I don't think they actually let you hire somebody to go to the DMV for you. I think you have to do it yourself. So everybody has to go. Now, that means that the cost in this case is progressive, right? No. Yeah, it's progressive, right, because it gets more and more costly as you get wealthier, because your opportunity cost of time rises. So um, it's not reflected. Um, I mean, it, it, it's reflected in, in, in it, people bear the cost for sure, and there are lots of people who would rather pay $100 at, to skip the line than have to wait in the line, but you aren't allowed to do that, so it's not incorporated into the system at all. Right? Not incorporated into the system at all. Does that answer the question? I do. Yeah. Oh. Mostly? Sure. Tell me what you think. <laughs> I'm not sure what I think. I just kept looking at all of the pictures of people waiting in line and thought to myself, "That's a lot of information." Yeah. And then, actually, not only is that an in, a lot of information, but that's also a cost of some sort. So I mean, we, two out of three is not bad. That ought to be enough for us to do something. Yeah. So, so the problem anytime we have, anytime prices aren't actually the thing that allocates the resource, we start allocating the resource based on other. <coughs> criteria, right? And it kind of depends on who's the person doling out the resource at the end of the day, how that gets done, right? So in cases of like minimum wage, right, which is also a way of messing with the price system, um, if you have to pay a minimum wage to hire somebody, then um, you'll be a lot more picky about, uh, you know, the way they look when you hire them, right? Or same thing's true for rent control, right? If you cannot rent out an apartment that you own at more than a certain price, then, well, you'll rent it out to someone pretty because then you don't have to worry about looking at someone ugly all the time, right? And stuff like that doesn't matter when prices are there because you're not picky when it's costly, right? When you have to pay, when you are the one that bears the cost of not letting the ugly guy rent your apartment, then you're not, well you can at least incorporate it into your your information set, right? Then you can make the decision based on how valuable it is to you that someone beautiful lives in your place, right? Or something like that.